series together. Father, what a joy it is to get together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thank you, God, that it is so good that we can meet together and that you are amongst us and present by your Spirit. And as we, as we gather together tonight, Lord, and as we look now particularly at your word, God, I pray that you would make your word come alive to us. Lord, I pray that it would speak to us like the living and active word that it is. I pray that it would, it would pierce our hearts and, and land deep, God. I pray that the things that I say that are inspired of you would stick with us and, and stay with us, God, and anything else just would disappear and drift away. But won't you come and inspire now your word to us? To, to move us and to mold us and to, to make us more like you, Jesus, and to change the way in which we live our lives. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. So it's my privilege this evening to continue our, our One John series that we started last week with Roland. And really what Roland shared last week is, is the heart of 1 John. And 1 John is a letter written to the church by the Apostle John where he talks about what it is like to, to live with an authentic faith. What your faith really needs to look like if you're going to call yourself a Christian. He says these are the kind of things that you need to be displaying in your life if you want to really call yourself a Christian. This is what authentic faith looks like for us. And and he does this throughout the letter, and he, he, does, he uses three big tests that he kind of puts out and, and intertwines as he works through the letter uh, in various different places about what, what, what genuine faith really looks like. And then at the end of that, he, he also adds in a sort of a reality check. So if you pass the tests and you want to call yourself a Christian, then you also need to know that these are some of the things that you need to be able to expect in the Christian life. Right? And these, these are the tests that he gives us. And we're going to look at the first one tonight. The first test is obedience. Right? If, you, if you are a Christian, right, you need to be obedient to what God has told you to do. And every time you see the phrase in 1 John, this is how you know, then you know that John's reintroducing one of these tests. Right? And he keeps bringing it up all the time. This is how you know. This is how you know that you're saved. This is how you know that someone else who's trying to teach you is saved. Can you see this fruit in your life, in their life? Right? Obedience is the first test. Love. Love is the second test. Do you really love God and do you really love others? How does that work out in your life? Then his third test that he uses is what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the person of Jesus Christ? Do you really believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God? Right? Those are the three tests that John presents in his letter. And you'll see as we read through it together over the next couple of weeks, you'll see how those begin to intertwine together as we go. And then he also, as a part of that, he says, if you, if you are a Christian, you need to know that this is what living like as a Christian is going to be like. It's going to be different. And you're going to experience things that other people are not going to experience. Some of that's going to be challenging, but I want to let you know that up front. That's where we're going to go over the next couple of weeks. And as I said tonight, we're going to jump into that first test. We're going to jump into obedience. And, and this happens, as I said, throughout the letter of 1 John. We're going to spend most of our time in the first four verses of 1 John chapter 2. Not quite the first four. We're going to go from three to verse six, right? And, uh, and we're going to land on some other messages as we come to an end, but that's really where we're going to go. But before we do that, I want to talk to you just a little bit about the idea of obedience itself. And so I did a Google image search for the word obedience, right? These are some of the images that I found. Some of them are kind of interesting. Some of them are cute. I know my wife's going to be very excited. There's a picture of four dogs, right? Some of you will also be excited about dogs. But just these are some of the pictures that Google associates 
with the word obedience. And, and I began to recognize that our, that our culture doesn't really love the word obedience. In fact, I'm sure when I said to you guys today, we're going to talk about obedience. And then all of you guys were like, hey, so excited to hear about obedience. I mean, maybe, I don't know what word associations happen in your mind when someone says we're going to talk about obedience together, right? But may, maybe you think, oh, he's going to, you know, I'm going to be told what I need to do, right? There's going to be some kind of limit that's about to be imposed on my freedom, right? There's a subservience that's implied in this idea of obedience. Um, there's this, this kind of idea of towing the line. There's this unquestioned, maybe mindless obedience where I don't get to interact with or engage with what you're telling me to do. I just kind of have to do it. Right? There's this idea of being disciplined, of, of being a follower, not a leader. Right? That you're going to need to behave or conform. I did, I did some further research. I found this very interesting tool on Google. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called the Ngram Viewer. Right? Very interesting tool. It told me how unpopular the word obedience is these days as a word. Right? So you can put that graph up. What it does is it looks through all of the books that have been uploaded into Google Books and tracks the frequency with which a word has been used over time. Right? And so you can see this, this map goes from the 1800 all the way through to 2000. You can see back in 1800, obedience was quite a popular word. It occurred a lot in the literature, relatively speaking, right? And it has dwindled extensively over time. It is, it is very much out of vogue, right? We don't like talking about obedience anymore in the new millennium, right? Rights, on the other hand, and I just put this in as a helpful comparison. Can you see how the word rights has kind of plateaued along and in the last sort of half a century, it's just kind of climbed because we're all about our rights. We have our human rights and animal rights. I watched Jurassic World last night. Do you know what the, the premise of the movie is that dinosaurs have rights too? It's freaking ridiculous. Right? We're all about rights at the moment. Not so much about obedience. What if I told you that God makes some different associations with the word obedience? If you read through 1 John, you'll see some of these associations. See, John associates the word obedience with knowledge. He associates it with love. He associates it with assurance, with confidence, with the blessing and the presence of God. Right? He has a lot to say about obedience, and it's very different to what our culture generally thinks about obedience. And so, so let's jump into 1 John chapter 2, and let's explore our way through these four couple of verses, and we'll go from there. 1 John 2 verse 3 says this, And we can be sure that we know Him if we obey His commandments. Right? This, is the, this is the first test, right? And John says, if we obey Jesus' commandments, then, then we can be sure that we know Him. Right? It's, it's very simple. We, there's an assurance of salvation, John says, that we can have. We can be sure that we know Jesus and that Jesus knows us. Right? And, and he continues to unpack this in a number of other ways, and we'll get there towards the end. Right? But what he says is assurance is the prize. This assurance of salvation, this, this thing that comes, this being sure that we are known by God and that we know Him, that's the prize of obedience. But there's some conditions that we need to meet in order to get to that prize. Right? And, and the condition is not really hard. It's not really difficult. It's three words. Obey His commandments. Right? And speaking, speaking about God in general, speaking about Jesus in particular, and uh, I want to just take a little bit of time to talk about just what that looks like for us. And, and I want to I do that under two key ideas. 
the first thing I think this idea means, obeying his commandments, it means that today, in the 21st century, we still need to take our Bible seriously. That's, that's what, one of the things that's really important about this. Nowhere else, nowhere else will you find the commandments of God eternally recorded for you. And, and this, we, we're a charismatic church. We believe in the Word of God coming through the Spirit and through the prophetic voice of God. And that's really great and it's a good thing. But this is different. Right? Sometimes that gets channeled through human people and, and it can be a little less clear. What John is talking about, he's talking about following the black and white that God has given us. The things that God has made clear. He's saying you need to set the Bible as the standard of truth in your life and you need to live according to it. That's what he's talking about. Do you remember the sto- one of the stories Roland told last week, for those of you who were here, about a young lady who was living a lifestyle that we would call sinful. And she's being interviewed by a reporter. And, and the reporter says to her, you know, what do you do when you're reading the Bible as a Christian? And, and it begins to speak about this lifestyle that you're engaging in. And, and it begins to call it sin. Well, what do you do when you reach those passages? And her response was, well, I turn the page. Right? So you remember that story from last week? Do you know how much that breaks my heart? Because that's not setting the Bible as the standard of truth. That's not taking the Bible seriously. That's setting what I feel and what I think to be the standard of truth. It's like I read that, but, but I'm sure, surely God wouldn't be like that. Surely God that I know and love wouldn't, wouldn't impose that standard on me that really just doesn't make sense with how I understand the world. Right? So suddenly, instead of the Bible being our standard of truth, it's how we feel about a particular issue. And this, this happens all over the place. When the Bible speaks about being unequally yoked together with someone who's an unbeliever, don't be partnered with someone that doesn't share the same fundamental belief that we do. Right? It's easy to, to kind of put that aside. Or when the Bible speaks and says, you know, well, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good and profitable and builds up the people that you're speaking to. Right? How easily do we sometimes just begin to make crude jokes, to swear about things, we, we don't get to do that. If the Bible's the standard of truth, we don't get to avoid those passages. When the Bible speaks about helping those who are less fortunate than us and, and working towards justice and supporting those who need help and are unable to look after themselves, we don't get to avoid that because it's inconvenient. That's the standard of truth. When it speaks about drinking too much or unhealthy sexual relations, you get the idea. We don't get to avoid it. But we've made the Scripture to be our standard of truth. That's the first thing. We have to take the Bible seriously if we're really going to obey His commands. The second thing that we have to do is we have to both read the Scripture, but then we also need to apply what we've read into our lives. And and this can be a problem for us because we often get distracted. And I speak from personal experience. I know what this is like. Jesus tells a parable about it. You remember the parable of the sower? And He goes out and He says, there's this guy and he's got some seed and he's throwing some seed around and it lands on all kinds of different ground. And the one ground that it lands on is called the path. And he says, what happens is the birds come down and they pick up the seed and they fly off with it. Right? And some of the other seed lands in, uh, in ground that's full of weeds. And what happens is the seed begins to grow, but the weeds choke it out. These are the distractions that come. It's the enemy that comes as the birds and steals the seeds. Right? And we get tempted. We get tempted to fail to apply the stuff that God sows into our hearts and lives. And so what I've done is I've, I've picked a couple of common temptations that I think many of us will face. And I've kind of characterized them into, you know, if you had to read an article, you know, six guys that you should avoid while dating. 
right? It's a little bit like that. And uh, so I don't want to be offensive at all. Some of these guys are me sometimes and the challenges that I face. But I want to just put it out there for us so we recognize the things that we need to battle against and make sure that we don't fall into. And the first is this. It's the guy that has no time to read his Bible. Guy or girl, right? That has no time. And, and I've been on both sides of this fence. I've been the guy that's gone to the pastor and said, I know you're telling me to do this, but I really, I just don't have any time in my life. And then I've been the guy on the receiving end, listening to the guy saying, Brad, I would love to be reading my Bible more, but I really just don't have the time. And, and I mean, this is something we all face. Paul says a couple of times, he says, this is a true and trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance. Right? I'm going to give you a true and trustworthy saying that's worthy of full acceptance. This is a fact. We will always find time for the things that are most precious to us. You will always find time for the things that are most precious to you. And if you don't believe me, you just don't know what the things that are most precious to you are. Because you're already valuing them. And if you can't see them, ask someone else. Right? They'll be able to tell you. They'll be able to tell you. Because your girlfriend wants to spend time with you, but you spend eight hours a day playing online games. She's no longer a value. Right? Your games are your value. And you can see it, even though you might say that you really love her. Just hypothetically. <laughs> Never happened to anyone I know. All right. The next guy, the intellectual student. Guys, this is, this is very much a temptation that I have to make sure I don't fall into. Right? This is the guy that really gets caught up in the study and the understanding of the text, which is great. Right? You love to learn about the background and the context and the grammatical construction and the linguistic argumentation and you know, the, re the rhetoric that's happening and, and what's going on. Right? But all of that knowledge never manages to get from here down to here, and then it never goes from here out to here. Right? And the seminary where I studied had a great little motto, and they said it's training the head, the heart, and the hands, because if you just learn and it just stays here, then it's no good. Then you just know stuff, right? But it doesn't change how you live. And, if, and then if it travels down to your heart, that's better because now there's a conviction. But if there's a conviction and there's no action, it still hasn't achieved its purpose, right? It's got to go from the head to our heart and then into the way in which we live. It's got to get practically worked out, right? You've got to be asking yourself the question, how does the scripture affect my life? What am I going to change? How am I going to live differently? How am I going to think differently? How am I going to treat others differently if I really believe this to be true? You've got to be asking those questions. Here's the third guy. This is also my temptation sometimes. I have to make sure that I don't land in this, right? This, this guy is the crowd critic, or sometimes the more spiritual term is the prophet, right? See, the prophet, this guy, you, you can really see the heart of Scripture. You can really see what God is saying. But sometimes you just don't see yourself. And so whenever you're reading scripture, you're mostly thinking of, of yourself as someone who's kind of got it together. And this, this particular scripture doesn't really apply to me, but you're, you're often reading scripture and you think, man, if, if Joe could just read this scripture, Joe Soap, right? Not our Joe, some other Joe, could just read this scripture. If they could just receive this truth, man, it would make such a difference in their life because they would really benefit from it. See, the thing is, you're not super spiritual. You're just prideful. And you just can't see yourself, and you need to be able to place yourself under the Scripture. Then you get the guy that gets nothing out of it, right? Where Scripture just seems dead and lifeless. And, and guys, I, this happens to all of us sometimes. This is, this is a challenge that we all face at times. 
And the, you know what happens, and, and I've been in conversations with people like this many times where they say, Brad, I'm trying, I'm trying really hard. But, you know, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of my times with God. And I'm reading the scriptures and, and nothing's happening. And so, you know what, you know what happened? I began, to, I began to stop reading. And logically, that seems to make sense. If the thing I'm investing time in isn't yielding fruit, then I stop doing it. The problem is, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. It's exactly the thing you shouldn't be doing. Right? Because the scripture is so significant. What we need is we need the work of the Spirit to come into that moment and to begin to change your heart and your life. See, the, the Scripture is living and active. That's how, that's how the writers to the Hebrew describe it. He says it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit. It's able to penetrate between bone and marrow. The Scripture hasn't changed. Its ability to change your life hasn't changed, but your heart has changed. And somewhere along the way, it's got a little hard. And it's battling to receive what God is saying. And so in those moments, instead of turning away from the Scripture, you need to turn back to it, but you need to turn to God. And you see, Holy Spirit, you need to come and make this alive for me. You need to bring this to life. If you haven't heard John's testimony, ask him to share it with you. It's a great story of how God brought Scripture alive, amongst many other things, when things were dead. I'm sorry, John, I hope that's all right. I just shared that. Final guy, final, final stereotype guy, right? This is the lazy guy. Right? And we all kind of sometimes fall into this category where you can see what it says and, and you know what you need to change. But if, you're, but if we're really honest, it, it just seems like a lot of effort and it seems like it might be quite hard and I don't really know what's going to happen if I do that. And so, so you don't make the conscious decision to do anything. It's kind of like when you see a friend that you haven't seen for a long time. You're like, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's fantastic. It's so great to see you. It's so wonderful. We should totally get a coffee sometime and hang out. And they're like, yeah, we should totally grab a coffee sometime and hang out. You're like, okay, I'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Yeah, great intentions. And I'm sure you really did want to see them for a coffee, but you know what? You never made a date and you're never going to see them for coffee. It's just not going to happen because you saw what needed to happen, but you didn't make a conscious decision to make it happen. And this can happen to us so often as well as we read the scriptures and we see what God is saying. But then instead of deciding, you know what, God, actually I need to do something about this. When the guy who doesn't have a home comes and knocks on my door and frustrates me, all I want to do is hang up the phone and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Maybe, maybe I actually need to change that. And maybe I actually need to go outside and talk to him. There's a, you actually got to do something about it. You can't just think about it and feel better about thinking about it. All right, that, that's, the first, that's the first test. And, and just two things to, to try and remember out of that. We've got to keep the Scriptures and treat them seriously. We've got to keep them as the standard of truth in our life. And we've got to make sure we don't just read them, but we actually apply them. We don't fall into those temptations. John carries on there in verse 4, and he says this. He says, if someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandment, that person is a liar. It's not living in the truth. This is the verse that follows straight on from chapter 3. And again, it's, it's a simple verse. It says, if you're making the claim that you know God, but you're not doing what God has told you to do, then John says, and this isn't me. This is John. He says, you're a liar. You're not living in the truth. You're deceiving others. You're deceiving yourself as well. This is an objective test. This isn't just someone's opinion. This is the standard that God requires of us. And I, and I know, uh, let me just cut this off now. Many of you are thinking, Brad, no one's perfect. Are you saying that because I'm not perfect, therefore I'm a liar, I'm not in the truth, and I'm outside salvation and looking in? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Right? 
What I'm saying, what I believe God is, what John is saying very simply here is, if you've not made obeying God's commands the directional compass of your life, right? If it's not clear that you are living by and obeying the commands of God as the standard of your life, then according to the scripture, again, not me, according to the scripture, you're outside of salvation looking in. Right? And if you're claiming otherwise, God would call you a liar. If you think I'm overstating this case or exaggerating or maybe just being a little bit harsh, listen to this conversation that Jesus has with some Pharisees in John chapter 8. Some of you will know this passage, right? The Pharisees were the spiritual and religious leaders of the day. They were the guys that were supposed to have been above reproach. They were the Israel's pastors and leaders of churches. This is a conversation Jesus has with them. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You would be doing the works of God. You'd be doing the things that God had commanded you to do, just like Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. So in fact, skip a few verses. In fact, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is speaking to these church leaders and he says, you are not doing the things that God has commanded of you. And because you're not doing them, you have shown yourself to be not children of God, but children of the, de- of the devil, in whom there is no truth in lies. And I know this can land and, and sound and feel quite harsh. And again, I'm sorry about it, I didn't write it. Right? But this is what the scripture says, and that's our standard of truth. Right? And so if you're sitting here this moment and, and you feel like this, this is actually speaking to you and perhaps there's something going on here that you need to recognize and acknowledge. Like maybe you haven't really, really chosen to follow Jesus and to actually live out the faith that he's called you to have. Then in, in this moment and tonight, you, you face a choice. You face a choice just like you would do. You can continue to pretend that you're in a better spiritual place with God than you really are. And most of us won't even know. And you can continue to live like that for as long as you like. But one day you'll stand before the righteous judge. And he will ask you, what have you done? Did you follow me or not? Or you can do what John urges his readers. The chapter before that Roland shared last week. In 1 John 1 verse 9. Where he says this, confess your sins. Right? Confess your sins to God. Allow him to restore you because he is faithful and just. That's what he wants to do. He wants to restore you. And so I want to give you permission at this point in the message, if you happen to be one of those people and you feel like you may have failed that first test and there's, there's a d- big decision you need to make, I want to give you the grace to not listen to anything else that I have to say. Now, you're welcome to if you'd like to, right? But you're welcome to just sit and allow God to help you work that question out for the rest of the message. And when we get to the end, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a decision or how you want to continue. All right, that's up to you. All right, and, and for the rest of us, if with integrity you, can, you feel like you can say that you've passed John's test, right, and I hope that's the case for many of us sitting here, right, because you've really set your heart to follow Jesus and to live out the commands that he's given us, then let's carry on for a couple of verses because John's got some more to say. All right, and we're going to come back to this. All right, let's go to verse 5 where he says this. He says, but those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. And what John does here is he shows the, the root 
of obedience. Have we got that, shall we? There we go. He shows us the root of obedience, which in Christianity, obedience is grounded in love. Right? This is very similar to 1 John 5, 3, where he says a little bit later, he says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. Right? You can stick that up as well, shall we? Right? This, is, this is how obedience should be. Obedience issues from a heart of love. It's given. It's not something that's demanded. It's something that's offered. Right. I'll give you a practical example. The other day, John phoned me up and he says to me, Hey, Brad, would you mind waking up at 5.30 on a Saturday morning and coming through to help us cook for the men's breakfast? Now, I could have responded in two ways. I could have said, Well, John, I will be there as soon as you show me in my contract where being a part of men's ministry is something I'm required to do. <laughs> right? I could, I could have said that because I now have a contract. It's very exciting. Right? <laughs> But that would be causing obedience to be demanded out of me. Or I could have said, you know what, John, it's quite early, but I will be there because I value what we're doing. And because I I, I love you as a brother, and I'm ready to be there. I love this phrase in in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, the first scripture that's on your screen there. I love in this phrase where John says that it's obedience that will show how completely they love him. There's a Greek word that's been translated into how completely they love, right? And it's this, it's tel, teleotai. I hope I, te, teleotai. I hope I got that right. right? Which means, and, and catch this, to add what is yet lacking in order to make a thing full. To add that which is lacking in order to make something full. See, obedience is actually the thing that perfects. It's the thing that tops up. It's the thing that brings to fullness the love for God that He's already put into our hearts. It's the part we get to play as we partner with God and what He's doing in our hearts and lives, as He molds us to be more like Jesus. Obedience is a beautiful thing. So that's... That's love. And John's going John's gonna to spend some more time in love next week, so I don't want to dig in any more into his turf, right? But I'm just going to leave that there for you. We're going to carry on into, into 1 John 2 and verse 6. And, and in this moment, John takes what he's given us already, and he, he levels it up for us, you know, in case we haven't had enough. So he levels up the test, and this is what he says. He says, this is how we know, right? Again, there's your test. This is how we know that we are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Because if our claim then, John says, if if we claim that we know God and we're living in Him, then we ought to be living our lives in the same way that Jesus lived our lives. In other words, when people are looking at you and they're looking at your life, it should point them towards Jesus. It should be like a replica of Jesus' life. People should be able to look at you and see Jesus in you. That shouldn't be hard. They shouldn't have to kind of work it out and discern it and rub out a whole bunch of stuff to be able to see Jesus. It should stand out. This is not a new claim. It's a really high claim. It's an exceptionally high claim, but it's not new. From the very beginning, Jesus went around and he said, I want you to come and follow me. It was a call to, to be with him, to be trained, to be mentored by him so that people would become his disciples. They would be those who would represent him and continue his ministry after he was gone. It's how Christians came to be called Christians and not simply followers of the way. They were originally followers of the way because what they followed was the way of God. And eventually people began to say, man, you look a lot like Jesus. 
Let's call you Christians. You're like Christ. Right? Jesus told the crowds in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I want you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want you to look like your Father in heaven. That's the call. Paul had the same idea. He says over and over again in his letters, I want you to imitate me as I am imitating Christ. If you can look like me, you'll be doing well because I've done the best I can to make sure that I look like Christ. And so I'll look like Jesus, and if you look like me, you'll look like Jesus, and together we'll all look like Jesus. This test is a little bit of a level up from the previous one. Remember the Pharisees that we looked at a little bit earlier in John chapter 8? The guys that Jesus called the sons of the devil, right? You see, the thing is, they actually took pride in obeying the law to the letter. They could stand before Jesus and they could say, you know, we have, we've obeyed the law. We've got the law. Paul describes his own fulfillment of the law when he was a Pharisee. He says it was flawless. It was faultless, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. And yet they still fail this test abysmally because living like Jesus is about so much more than living out the letter of the law. It's about living out the heart of the law. It's about living in response to the law giver. And, and there's, there's a whole lot we could say here. There's a whole sermon series in the idea of living like Jesus. And so I'm going to limit myself to not speak about all of that tonight. All right, I'm going to limit it to just two ideas. Take these two ideas. Jesus lived for the glory of his Father. Jesus lived for the glory of his Father. That's, that's his purpose, right? It's about what he understood his life on earth to be about. And for us, we can get a little confused about that sometimes. We can, we can start to add to that, well, I want to make sure that I live comfortably. I want to make sure that I, that I have great friends, that I'm accepted in my community, that, that I have the right job, and that I'm quite successful, and maybe people look up to me. I don't want to live in the right place. Maybe I want to travel and have lots of great experiences. For Jesus, he knew that there was one express purpose in life, to bring glory to the Father. And that was the filter for the way in which he lived his life. Whenever he asked, should I do this? Should I go here? Do I need this? Should I buy that? All of those questions get filtered through this purpose. I need to bring glory to the Father. Is this going to help me bring glory to the Father? Is this about bringing glory to the Father? Is this about me? It's what it means to live for the Father's glory. And, and we, it, it, it creates a place of dependence where we start, where we say, God, Father, what are you calling me to do? What is my role in response? How do I walk in obedience to what you're doing with me? Right, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing in living like Jesus. Jesus lived out of his identity. Jesus lived out of his identity. It was his identity that gave him the confidence and the peace to live with the purpose that he had. He knew, and when I say knew, I don't mean he kind of had read once in a textbook and knew that it was theoretically true. He knew like he knew like he knew. He knew like a mother knows that a child is hers, that he was God's son that he was loved by God, that he was accepted by him, that he was empowered by him, that he was guided by God, that he was looked after by him, that he was never alone, never unable, never forsaken. And this deep, deep understanding that he had of who he was enabled him to live in the way that he did. And for us, if we're going to live as Jesus did, then we need these two things to become a part of our lives. We need, to, we need to be able to live like Jesus did. 
We need to know the purpose that Jesus lived with. And we need to know the identity that we live out of. It's all about who I'm living for. And all the things that we said about who Jesus was and his identity, those are all equally applicable to each and every one of us as Christians. God's child, loved by him, empowered by him, enabled by him, guided by him. All of that is yours when you're a child of God. And you've got to, we've got to get to a place where we don't just know it here, but we know it here and then we live it here. That's what we've got to do. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the tests of obedience. We're going to, we're going to move on now. We're going to look at the prize. But John says, when you, when you live in obedience, you can be sure that you are with him, that you are in him, that you're inside of salvation looking out, all right? And John does this in many ways and all across his letter. And I battled this week because it took me about a day and a half to work out what I'm actually going to share on and which one of these wonderful passages I'm going to preach out of because they're all full of so much greatness. But let's turn our attention. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. And we're just going to focus in very briefly on some of the fruit, some of the prize that we, get to, that we get to walk in and live with when obedience is a part of our life, when we really are keeping His commands and living like He lived. Right, 1 John 3 from verse 19 to 24 says this, By this we will know that we are of the truth and we will reassure our hearts before Him. Because whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. And so, beloveds, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. You see, as we read that, how it's obedience that brings about our assurance that our hearts are assured before God, right? Because we are doing the things that He's called us to do. Do you see the confidence that we are able to have before God because our hearts don't condemn us because we know that we're living in, like Jesus lived, that we're living out the commands that He's given us. There's a boldness, there's a knowledge of identity that we're able to live in as Christians because of what God is doing in us and because of how we are walking in what He's given us to walk in. Do you see the, the confidence of provision and the, the strength in prayer? Can you imagine praying like that? Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we know that we're walking according to His will. We know that we're living like He lived. We know that we, we're walking and living out of identity. Receiving whatever we ask. John continues in verse 23. He says, this is the, His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That we love one another. There's the intertwining views. Right? Just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him and by this we know He abides in us by the Spirit whom He gave us. Notice how obedience leads to this confirmation of our union with God. It's like this beautiful um, reinforcing union. That once, once you walk in obedience, you begin to recognize what Jesus has already done in you by joining Himself to you and making you one with Him and the Father and the Spirit just as He was one with the Father and the Spirit. Right? This goes back to John chapter 17. He prays this beautiful prayer. And he speaks about it so often. That's what He's already done in you when He saved you. And now as you begin to walk in that in obedience, as you begin to live like Jesus lived, you begin to see that union in action and you begin to de deepen and develop the connection that you have with God and it builds in you this understanding and this assurance that I really am in God and God is in me. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. So we're going we're gonna to bring this 
We're going to bring this message to a close. And I'm going to ask Mike and the team, you guys to come join me up on the stage as we do this. And I want to ask you this question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with the scriptures that we've read tonight? With what God's been saying to you through the scriptures? And if you're sitting here and you stopped at that moment when I gave you permission to stop and you've been pondering that question, have I, have I really been deceiving myself and others? Am I really following Jesus or not? And I've kind of been looking like it, but I'm not living out the commands and I'm not really allowing to, my, the following of God to shape my life. If that's where you are, there's an opportunity that you have tonight to turn to Him or to continue in denial. The choice is yours. I encourage you to come to Him because it's the best thing you can do. Or maybe for some of us, we knew that our orientation was right, but our execution needed work. And there were just moments and spaces where we know we've allowed the enemy, and maybe there's been a consistent pattern of allowing the enemy to, do, to take some ground. We haven't been applying the truths of Scripture like we should in our lives because it's been too hard. Or because we've actually, we just enjoy getting caught up in the knowledge, but we don't allow ourselves to get into the living. Uh, there's an opportunity for us to recognize what is that place where I've missed it, where, where really my heart's been a little bit in rebellion. I can come to God and I can turn from it. Just as John promised us, he says, you can come before him, confess your sins before him. He is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, and to restore us to the way in which he has called us to live. And maybe for some of us, we're not quite sure where it is yet, but we know we want to look more like Jesus. We know there's work that God needs to do in our hearts. I'm going to lead us into a time of prayer for that, and, and part of our response is going to be to take communion together. This is something that we do as Christians. Together we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember that we're able to live like Jesus lived and to, to live out the commands that He gave us because He died on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins. He broke the bondage that we had with sin and death, and He opened up a way for us to walk in life and in righteousness. He opened up a way for us to walk in union with Him that we never had before. And so we're going to take communion together, and I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Maybe you're going to, you're going to choose to follow Jesus for the first time tonight. I want to welcome you to take communion with us and allow Him to bless you as you do that. For the rest of us, as you've processed whatever it is that God has just been putting on your heart tonight to process, the area that He's been highlighting, the place that you need to, to fine-tune in obedience, just bring it before Him, work it through with Him, and then go and take communion as a reminder that, that once we've confessed our sin and we've turned away from it, that's what repentance is. Repentance is I was walking this way. And I realized this way was wrong. And so I turned around and I began to walk this way. Once you've done that, go, go and take communion as a celebration that Jesus has set you free. That he's opened up the way to live in communion with the Father. And that's beautiful and it's wonderful. And we're going to do that as the team maybe plays the first song. And they're going to play it and sing it gently over us. And then we're going to move into a time of worship together. And if while we're in worship, you want someone to pray with you, you just come and grab someone. We're happy to do it. We'll continue. If you want to worship God, we encourage you to do that. As usual, we're going to finish at about 20 past 7 if we need to continue that long. If we're running longer than that, you're welcome to leave. Otherwise, we ask you to stick around with us until we bring it to a close.
But let's take some time, let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you because you're at work here this evening by your Spirit. Thank you that you're at work in our hearts. And I want to I wanna pray and, and lead those in prayer who are, who are maybe choosing to follow Jesus. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe you realize that you were following, but you really turned away. And you turned your back and you want to you wanna come back to God and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to I acknowledge you as my king. I want to live by your commandments. I want to live like you lived, by your grace, by the Spirit, as you enable me. You can just come before God in your heart and, and you can just say to him, Jesus, I know that I have absolutely messed up. I have sinned. I've fallen so far short of what you've required of me. And I want to thank you this evening for your grace. Thank you, God. Thank you that even though I've hurt you so deeply, God, I'm sorry for doing that, but thank you that you have forgiven me. Thank you that you make that available to me through Jesus. And tonight I want to choose to follow you. Tonight I want to say, I want to be one who is known and people are able to see Jesus in me because I follow you and I walk in obedience to you. So if you've prayed that tonight, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour yourself out on your sons and daughters, that you would fill them up, God, with their portion and their anointing and the union that you've created us to be in with you, that they would know a new era of life, a new way of living, of being joined to the living God and filled with you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. And if that is you, I'd encourage you to come and speak to someone afterwards just so we can help journey you out through this process. We can, we can help walk with you, love you, encourage you. And God, for, for those of us who've been able to see that we've been, we've been falling short, God, in a particular area, maybe we've been walking in, in strong rebellion, maybe we've just been letting something slip in it, and it's got, it's got bad. We haven't told anyone about it yet, but it's just there. We know about it, and you know about it. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for where we've fallen short. Forgive us our sin, God. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness, Lord. Set us on the path towards righteousness. Make clear in us the picture of Jesus, that we could really live like those who are following you that our lives would look like your life, God. God, for all of us, we pray that you mold us, God, and make us more like Jesus. Conform us into the image of your Son. Show us, God, where we need to begin to change things, to tweak things, to think differently, to feel differently, to respond differently, to speak to others differently, to make choices differently, to choose to rely on you where before we've been thinking about only ourselves. Oh, we just choose to turn to you tonight, God. Thank you, Lord. And God, as we've done that with you, we're going to take communion. And so whenever you're ready during this next period of time, just go up. There's tables at the front, and uh, there's four tables here. Just grab a table, grab a piece of bread, a cup of grape juice, and just thank Jesus for what he's done for you. 
Thank you for the freedom that he's brought. Freedom from bondage, freedom from sin. Freedom to really follow. And then join us in songs, spend some time with God, whatever you feel God is doing with you. If you feel there's a word for us as a congregation, we invite you to bring it up to the front. Are we going to follow God as we go from here? Thanks, Mike.